on this Thursday morning. We're all getting used to sleeping in Yosemite and not at all used to the views that surround us. Let's turn to this morning the Gospel of Luke now again. As we're progressing our way here through some of these commissions, I do have a few more outlines left. I don't know that I have them with me this morning, but I'll look. But we'll bring them tomorrow morning if you have any interest at all. As we've been working through and seeking to discern what the Lord has for us in each of these last passages, these latter passages in the Gospels, these commissions that are given by the Lord Jesus. I wanted to just make quick reference to where we've been very shortly here. We spent some time again in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28. And took note of that powerful commission, that call to uh, commitment that the Lord gives to us there at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And we read about a lot of alls in those short phrases. We read about all power having been given unto him. That we're to go to all nations. That we are called to do it all the days. That we recognize that the Lord Jesus is with us all of those days. And so we looked at that commission that Matthew remembers and recollects for us and passes on to us. And then we spent a little bit of time yesterday in Mark and how Mark seemed to be that alarm, alarm clock that states to us it is high time to awake out of our sleep. And in its brevity, in its terseness, it awakens us to the eternal destiny of men so that drastic consequences require drastic measures and we took note of that story in luke chapter 5 where these individuals went up and ripped away the roof so that they could place this needy individual into the very presence of the god of the ages into the presence of the lord and so we spent a few minutes there in mark and how it told us what the absolute consequences were and how it compelled us commanded us as it were to go forth in the power of the gospel. And then we took note as we moved on into Luke, as we compared and contrasted in some respects, how he almost seems to be dealing with the elements, the basic fundamentals of the gospel. And Dr. Luke dissects for us these fundamentals. Mark has woken us up, and Luke is going to give us some of the details of the gospel. And John is going to find, as we move on to his gospel here later on this morning, that he starts coming down to the heart, the root of all things, our love for the Lord. Because you and I know from John chapter 14 and 21 that unless we love the Lord, we'll never obey him. Because the root of our obedience is our love for the Lord. But let's go back here to the gospel of Luke as we finish up just on a couple of these points. And I'd like to read with you again these verses beginning in verse 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved, or thus it must be, remember. We saw that back from verse 44, the identical word that's carried forth here. Thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name 
among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses or spectators of these things. And behold, I send you the promise of my father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Now, just for you to think about for a few minutes here, when you let your mind wander away from what's being said from up here, I'd like you to take note where, and we took, we did so with the gospel of Matthew and also with Mark, but how Luke is going to round out his gospel in such a tremendous way even if we merely look at it from a literature perspective. Remember where this gospel starts. Well, you're going to remember it because you recognize where it ends, right? It ends in the city of Jerusalem, particularly a place called the temple. That's the last place that's brought before our attention here. And it begins this gospel with a certain priest. And it's going to end with another priest at least in priestly posture, as he blesses his own. So let your thoughts go along that if you'd like to for a few minutes here. But let's go back here very quickly and take note of what we looked at yesterday. Thus it is written, said verse 46, that our gospel is based upon the word of God, down to the jot and down to the tittle of it all. And then we took note nextly that thus it behooved Christ, it says, to suffer. And we noted what a wonderful thing it is to spend time thinking about the tremendous love that is seen in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, that for some reason it was necessary for the result. Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53 are passages that are precious to us as the Lord suffers again, not merely to take our place, but he suffers for the wretchedness of sin itself. And if that doesn't turn our hearts in love, when we recognize that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die and to die upon a sinner's cross and to realize all that the Lord Jesus went through for us in his sufferings at Calvary, And that the only man who ever lived perfectly, righteously, every word, every work in faithfulness to his father was the man who at the end had to declare publicly that this same father whom he loved and that loved him had forsaken him for our sins. What a statement that was on the cross. The suffering of the absence of the Father in whose bosom he always dwelt, it says. It was necessary for him to suffer. And if that doesn't hit our heart and cause us to fall down before the the Lord in love, then nothing will. It was necessary, says the Lord Jesus, that he suffer and arise from the dead, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and how we ought not to forget to preach that. And we spent some time there yesterday as well. And then repentance and then remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
Now, Lord willing, we'll take up this source place where the gospel began when we move on into the book of Acts, beginning at Jerusalem. So let's carry on. But then he says, and you are witnesses or spectators of these things. And behold, I send you the promise of my father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And again, we'll take some of these thoughts up as we move on into the gospel of, of uh, John and then especially into Acts. But I'd like to just point out something here very briefly before we move on into John based on our time here. And that is where he left his disciples. Two simple thoughts here. The first is, look at, though they turned from their unbelief, shall we say, their lack of understanding, and Luke doesn't bring that out quite as much as Mark does and as much as Matthew does. He's not rebuking them here in the Gospel of Luke for their hardness of heart, as Mark renders it. But it says in verse 51 that as it came to pass while he blessed them and he was parted from them and carried up into heaven, that they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. I mean, that's the response of a true believer in the Lord Jesus, is it not? Great joy as they see what he's done, as they recognize that God has selected not 12 legions of angels, but 12 men. And today he's chosen us to carry forth the good news. It ought to bring joy. And oftentimes I look out over a crowd like this or individuals like this and I don't frankly see a lot of joy. And we don't see a lot of smiles these days, especially in the world around us. But there ought to be one, if not many things that set us apart from the others in this world. And that is the joy that we have, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And it ought to shock us that people don't come up to us. Have you had anybody in the last year or two years come up to you and say, where do you get your joy? It really should shock us that people don't do that. Your mouth isn't here to hold your ears apart, right? You can smile occasionally and let a little bit of joy come out. It's okay. The Lord doesn't mind that. He's the creator of emotion. And in response to what he's done for us, these saints, it says, that they had joy. Now look at Romans chapter, I believe it's chapter 15. I'll have to think it through here real quick. But I believe it's Romans chapter 15 when I think of this subject. At the beginning, I believe it'll pop out for us here. Romans chapter 15. As Paul begins to conclude this tremendous letter. In verse 13, he says this. Now, the God of hope fill you with all joy, it says, and peace in what? In believing. In believing, it says. That if we have an implicit and absolute trust in our God and in his word, that it is going to produce that belief is going to produce in us a joy, right? And these men had just come from the place of not believing those that had said that the Lord Jesus had resurrected, even after two testimonies or three testimonies. And now they're believing in him. And it results, does it not, in joy, it says. 
If you really believe something, the response is joy, isn't it? Now, we work with a lot of realtors back home in my business. And they're not very busy these days because there isn't a lot of action in that market, right? But boy, are there ever some buys. And there are people out there making offers that are ridiculous, right? And these crazy banks, and there's at least one banker here, so I'll be a little bit careful. But they work in what you call as a fractional banking or fractional reserve banking system. And they frankly do not have a lot of hard money in these loans, right? Now, they don't want their balance sheet to be ruined, but they don't have a lot of hard money in these loans. And this house comes back, they foreclose on it, and they're ready to get it off the books, even though it isn't helpful on their books, but they need to get it off. And you can imagine a young family, they don't have a lot of money, and they make a crazy offer. And this realtor is forced to give it. He's embarrassed to do it, but he takes it to the bank, and he makes the offer, and he says it's impossible, right? And about four days later, this family gets a phone call. And the realtor's aghast. And he says, guess what? They took it. And what happens to this family, right? The little kids start jumping up and down off the ground. And they start packing their goods. And excitement, because they've heard some realtor on the other end of a phone line that said they just got a house. I mean, can you even believe the guy, right? Sometimes we question realtors a little bit along those lines too. But our God says something, and we don't even have a joy in it occasionally. I'll tell you, when my wife's father finally said, yes, guess what happened? I mean, that was an exciting day, right? I'm sure many of you don't know him, but he's a rather pragmatic individual. He grew up on the mission field down in Paraguay, given a lot of responsibility when he was young. One of the things that his father did was provide work for a lot of the locals, and they had different businesses going on. And he took some responsibility in those businesses when he was young. And his father was a kind, I'm sure, but not necessarily an easy man. And that first phone call to him, that was quite a shock. You know, he had some questions that I could not answer, right? But there finally came a point in time, wonder of wonders, by the mercy of God, I guess, that he said yes. And there was a little joy that crossed my face. Yeah, a little. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Especially since my wife's back here, right? <laughs> my wife is fabulous. I'm the most fortunate man in the world. That was the source of the joy. But now go with me just a little bit further. The Lord Jesus is standing here blessing them. He goes on into glory. The promise in the book of Acts is going to be that in like manner as he went on, he's going to return. And he's going to come for his bride, isn't he? And you and I are privileged to be that blood-bought bride. Now, I know this is a little ridiculous, and I don't mean it to be centered on us, because we just want to live for the Lord for the sake of his honor and for the sake of his glory. But you know, God is no man's debtor, is he? And he has a place for us as his bride in glory that is unmatched and incomprehensible. But I want you to think about this very quickly. You could say to yourself, but Lord, what's the neighborhood like? I mean, you're going to take me away forever, right? What is your house like? Oh, it's a gated community. Gates of pearl. You know, that's sounding pretty good, isn't it? I mean, I live on a dusty trail going to our house and our, the inside of our house shows it. But what are the streets like there? 
Now, you've caught me already because there aren't streets in heaven. There's only one. Scripture says the street is made of what? Say, Lord, I can take that. That's okay, right? Do you mean to tell me that we are going to be betrothed, we are betrothed, to one who is perfect in every relationship, will never say an unkind word, has complete understanding and sensitivity to every need, is infinitely wealthy. You say, well, tell me a little bit more about this house, if you will. And we like to do this in our business, you know, calculate space, right? And one day we sat down and we said, all right, how big is the floor plan of heaven? 6.26 trillion square feet. If you believe it according to the measure of a man. Now, maybe you have big ideas as a bride and you say, but yeah, I don't want a one story. I'd like a two story. But if you get two stories, you better get a maid, right? Well, I'll tell you, if you don't like eight-foot ceilings, make them ten. Guess how many levels there are in glory in heaven? 729,000 levels. If you take it by ten feet, by the measure of that angel, by the measure of a man. What a place. The landscaping is filled with such magnitude that today we can't even look into it. I just saw a picture recently that was taken in deep space by Hubble. And it looks like the starry heavens that we look at or that we looked at like last night. Numerous of us were sitting around looking up last night. Magnificent number of stars. But below the the picture is this. It showed and it put little circles around the only two stars in the whole of the sky. The rest of them were galaxies. They weren't stars. They were galaxies. And the Lord says that one day we're going to be with him. You can let a little smile cross your face, right? And these people, as they're blessed by the Lord of glory, at the end of this gospel, it says that they went forth into the work with great joy. What a privilege it is to be the Lord's. Now, we have made comment that this may also be a priestly blessing because our Lord Jesus stands before them, Luke records, and he raises his hands to heaven in that wonderful priestly posture. And it says that he blesses them. And if this book opened up with a priest in the temple who came out to bless the people after doing his duties within His name was Zechariah, and he was silent. Scripture says that he was a dumb priest, and he had nothing to say insofar as blessing went to the people. But it doesn't close that way, does it? It closes with the one who is a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And he raises his hands to heaven itself, and he leaves his people with his blessing. I don't know if the Lord has his favorite verses in Scripture. But the verse that is repeated more so than any in Scripture is this. Seven times over, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you and I live under that blessing today as we go forth, carrying the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us. And what a joy it ought to be to be his. Now, let's move on into John, as the Lord gives us just a few minutes here. Yeah, we're still all right, aren't we? Okay, 
If I'm wrong, Larry, you stop me, all right? I guess we have a few minutes yet. John, for a minute there, I blanked out on stop time here. But the Gospel of John here coming next as we look at this fourth commission, this fourth mountaintop that John is now going to remind us of. We're going to see it through his tremendous perspective. And I would like to take the time to go ahead and read through this chapter. We're going to call it the Commission of Gospel Devotion. As the Lord comes down, not only to work with Peter's heart, as we'll see, but he's going to touch our hearts also. Chapter 21, Gospel of John, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise manifested he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. And when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. Pay attention, we're going to come across this thought later in Peter's, or commentary to Peter, this girding of the coat. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. And Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty-three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. The word is literally schism. There was no schism in the net. And Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself or manifested himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when Peter had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Jesus saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest 
that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, if I will, that he tarry till I come. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. How many times do you find in the New Testament the Lord Jesus in that solitary sense saying, if I will? Very rare, is it not? Because it was always nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. They're noticeable references, brother and sisters. If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then when is saying abroad, this saying abroad among the brethren, that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And for the fourth time, we say together, Amen. And so John concludes this writing of the last chapter, this commission, we might say, of gospel devotion. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but where does John chapter 21 lie in the scriptural record? It's exactly right, isn't it? It's an epilogue and it's a prologue. The Spirit has discerned to put it right here at the very end of these histories of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as so, it serves as a tremendous summary of these four Gospels. But it is also at the very beginning of this book of the Acts of not so much the Apostles, but the Acts of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit through the lives and the workings of these Apostles. It lies at the beginning of that. And as such, it is a prologue. And in this chapter, and it's one of the great chapters in all of Scripture, we find again almost a drawing together of everything that's gone before in these writings concerning the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And then it's like the shotgun, the impetus for what's going to happen in the book of Acts. Because we're going to notice a couple things. First of all, and we've taken some simple words to outline our chapter, but the first word may be this, fellowshipping. These men were together now, weren't they? Together to go forth in obedience to the recall and the charge of God. Secondly, they're going to go out and they're going to go fishing. And once these fish, and I have no idea how this miracle happens, how the Lord changes fish into sheep, but somehow or other, after they've, done, they've completed the fishing, they are to follow on and carefully feed 
literally shepherd the sheep that the Lord's going to give them. But in the midst of it all, there's this little conversation, this little instance concerning feasting. As these disciples come and sit down with the Lord Jesus and experience his presence and his provision for them. And then in the end, we're going to have these thoughts concerning following our personal fidelity before the Lord. And I love how John puts it. In essence, he says, the Lord Jesus says to Peter, he looks him right in the eye and he says, mind your own business. You pay attention to your master. And if John does this, that or the other, that's between John ultimately and his Lord. But you mind your own business. And so we have these simple thoughts that are now going to be before our attention. And I'd like to look at verse one as we just begin to work through this. There is nothing quite like a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these disciples had that privilege at the Sea of Tiberias. We begin in Matthew on a mountain. And now at the end of these Gospels, they're by the seaside, and the Lord Jesus is going to manifest himself in this way. And they were together. Now let's think about this phrase just a little bit, because there weren't together in the verses before this, these men. Thomas it is said, was not together with these disciples. Now, we've been talking about what was mentioned last year, a couple years ago by uh, Jade Nicholson, this idea of rebooting and refreshing our Bible screen, kind of taking a new look at it. I mean, why wasn't Thomas there? In some sense, it's conjecture. I mean, we know that he said, unless I see, I will not believe. And thusly, we call him Doubting Thomas. But you have to also take note of this fact. Those disciples were behind a locked door out of fear, it says, for the Jews. Maybe Thomas wasn't as fearful. By the way, some of them had their doubts too. Don't give Thomas too hard of a time. But he wasn't there. But now together, the names that are given to us are first of all Simon Peter. And it's kind of fun to note that The Lord gives one of them a formal name. Another one, he adds a nickname. One, he gives his location where he was from. Two names he doesn't even give except by reference to his father. And then two names he doesn't give at all. Let's read that second verse. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. How many disciples were there together according to verse 2? It calls us to count them, doesn't it? Because, I mean, John's the number man. I I suppose he was a fisherman, but I'll tell you this, he was a mathematician. I hope you noticed it when we went through the chapter. Over and over and over again, he is giving numerical attributes to things. And here he says, and oh yes, there were also two in addition to the others. And that catches our attention. Seven men together. And it could be the idea of the well-roundedness of that number, the completion of that number. But they were now together, seven men. Our God is a personal God. And he's bringing together seven men who, quite frankly, had had their deep struggles in days gone by. Simon Peter, he had denied the Lord of glory. 
even though with cursing and oaths he'd done it. The Lord still in kindness looks to him. The cock crows and Peter weeps. Peter had had his issues. Thomas? Thomas had had his, his issues of faith, hadn't he? Unless I see, unless I touch, unless you're tangible to me, Lord. What was that about faith, Thomas? Thomas had had his issues. James and John, we don't have time to look into each one of them. James and John, they weren't even brave enough to go up and ask the Lord for the right and the left-hand side. And they got mommy to do it. And they wanted the right and the left-hand side. And their concept of greatness was to be high in God's kingdom. And the Lord Jesus had to remind them that he that is greatest is the one that is the least, is the servant. And they had everything just backwards. And oh, it must have struck their hearts when these sons of thunder recognized that they hadn't even picked up on the humility, perhaps, and the wonderful place that they could find when they went down to minister to others instead of desiring to be seated at the high place, almost like the high place of the table. Instead of being brought up, they wanted to sit in the preeminent seat right off the bat. The Lord brings them together, doesn't he? And two others of his disciples. Now, who are these other two? I mean, I have no idea, so I hope you might say that too. Um, But Alexander White and a lot of these other people, they're sure who they are. I don't know who they are. But I do like this thought that someone once gave to me, and it was this. I'll tell you who they are. They're you and they're me. That's who they are. Because we have the very same needs as these men. And we need to take our place alongside them as we have the Lord Jesus manifested to us and to be together with these men and to listen and to look and to pay attention to the Lord and what His economy is like. And what his desires for us are, the desires of his heart. And so we take our seat with them. And we hear, first of all, Simon Peter saying unto them, I go a fishing. Now, I'm really fortunate because my time is up. And I've already heard two comments. I'm about to get into deep, serious trouble. Because we've already heard two comments this week about these disciples. Now, they didn't give them this hard of a time. But the idea was this. These poor disciples... Spiritual for a moment, but now all of a sudden they're going back into secular work, right? I mean, what are they doing? They've been called away from it once. Where did they get the net, by the way? They'd already forsaken all and fled. What are they doing going back and going fishing? Well, I think it was probably the right thing to do, and I could be totally wrong. But you meditate on it and see what the Lord's thoughts are. They go fishing. Simon Peter says, let's go fishing. And they say unto him, we also go with thee. And they all went forth and entered into a ship immediately, it says. But that night they caught nothing. Let's just pray and we'll leave those thoughts with you. And you can do some meditation overnight if you'd like. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee so much for your goodness to us and the gift of your son. We pray now as we take up the subject of Jacob, the supplanter who is being turned by the goodness and grace of God into a very prince with God, that we would see in him the grace of the Lord in our own lives, the mercy of the Lord in our own lives, and that it might be an impetus for us to seek to change for the Lord 
with his strength, by his power, for his glory. We just are thankful for these words of Scripture and for this blessed time that you give us together in the Word of God. We commit the remainder of this morning unto thee and expectantly look forward to it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.